Well, dear friends, if you please turn with me in your Bibles there to the New Testament, to that portion there in Hebrews and the second chapter. And with the Lord's enabling this evening, I hope to look with you at these first three verses. I believe that the Lord has burdened my spirit this year, particularly with the concern that so many verses are often taken out of context. And it is often to the weakening of the church. It is often to the detriment of the church. And I hope to show from at least two passages of Scripture this evening how important it is. And I'm sure that your dear pastor would hold to the same theology. I believe we have the same understanding of these things. And even if that were not the case, I would still be compelled to, to preach the truth. So I don't say these things because your pastor says them, but I seek to reinforce them for the sake of Jesus Christ. We are concerned, are we not, for the church of Jesus Christ. We live in perilous times, friends, when the Word of God is uh, so sadly hardly studied. And uh, so often we use verses. This is so common in churches today. It seems to be a very common thing with uh, young men in seminaries and uh, even reform seminaries to take verses of scripture that are meant for the believer and then to apply them to the unbeliever leaving the church bereft of vital foundational truth and uh, it's of no use we must correctly read and apply scripture and we I'm sure you've heard this said before context is always king, isn't it? Context is always chief. And we must always use what we call the analogy of faith when we come to the Word of God, or the analogy of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. So we read verses 1 to 3. The Apostle Paul here, and I'll give an outline why we believe that this is the Apostle Paul, one of the things we have with many of the modern translations. And I believe that it does great despite because we need to understand it is Apostle Paul here that is writing these things and we can prove it quite easily through many things that are said in the scriptures concerning even these passages. Verse 1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For... Because if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Now, as I said, many verses, sadly, are often taken out of context. The first thing we need to establish as we come to this, and you may not see the relevance of it, but who is the penman? Who is the one recording these things? I say, first of all, that this is the Word of God. This is the infallible Word of God. God gave His Word to holy men to write, as Peter says. But who is the actual penman? That's important. Well, increasingly, as I said, modern translations 
deny here that the Apostle Paul is the penman or the one writing, being moved by the Spirit of God. Well, it's very clear. Firstly, the Apostle Paul, although he was the Apostle to the Gentiles, you may wish to turn there to Acts chapter 9 and verse 15. We read, as the Lord spoke to him there, as Paul, you know, was converted there, as he was on the road to Damascus, and the Lord struck him down, and the Lord said to him that he was the apostle and he was to take the gospel out to the Gentiles. But there is a further note we must observe, Acts 9.15, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, and this is concerning the Apostle Paul, as he spoke to another man, he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, now notice, and the children of Israel. So the Apostle Paul not only was the minister to the Gentiles and to stand before kings and Agrippa and others, of course we know, but also the children of Israel. Paul, as we know, spent considerable time with the Jews in Jerusalem. Something else we need to be reminded of, that Peter was very clear. If you turn with me just for a moment to 1 Peter, we know in 1 Peter chapter 1, but if you turn to 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, verse 15, we know that these epistles, whether it's 1 Peter or 2 Peter, Peter was writing to Jews, to what we call the dysphoria, those Jews who were dispersed, who were scattered, greatly persecuted. And uh, of course Peter was there at Jerusalem and also he went about other places. But Peter wrote to the Jews, general, to those scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia and so on. Second Peter 3, 15, we read, we find this. Peter says this, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now who would that be? The Jews, as I said. He's writing to Jews. And here you have it. And what epistle would that be? Have a look at verse 16. Also, in all his epistles, so not only has he written to them, in various ways, but in all of his epistles, that would be to the Gentile churches, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. Now notice something else. As they do also the other scriptures. Now what Peter is saying here is that what Paul wrote was scripture. And just as they rest the other scriptures, they rest the scriptures that God had given to the Apostle Paul to write. And he says, he wrote to you, the Jews. So we must be very clear. And the, the, the only other epistle would be this epistle to the Hebrews. So we should be left in no doubt here that Peter is making very clear that Paul is the penman. And then, again as I said, in Acts 9, 28, there's another verse. It says there, and we can see how Paul 
had very many dealings with the Jews. It says there in Acts 9.28, And he, Paul, was with them, coming in and going out of Jerusalem. Remember how he went up. And then again, also, don't we have it in Acts uh, chapter 15 and so on. At that time when there was that dispute with the Judaizers that came down, contending against the apostles, insisting on circumcision and so on. Then fifthly, we could say, another reason why we can believe that this is the Apostle Paul, there are obvious things that are said in this epistle. If you just turn to Hebrews 10 and the verse 34. Paul, we know, was imprisoned many times, wasn't he? And here he is appealing to these brethren who themselves were greatly persecuted. He says in verse 34 of chapter 10, Ye had compassion of me, in my bonds or in my chains. You see, they ministered to his needs. He was very familiar. Here, it, this has to be Paul. Again, in Hebrews 13, 19, he says, But I beseech you, the rather, to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. It appears that he's still in difficulty and is wanting to be restored with them. Now these are perilous times. The time now is uh, not far, perhaps four years before Jerusalem would fall. And uh, of course we know the tension is building up between the Romans and the Jews. And uh, we know that in uh, later on, as we'll see, Paul refers to the time, remember how you were made as a gazing stock. They used to round up the Jews, the, the believing Christians with the Jews and mocked them. And uh, he has to recall several things to their mind. The time now is probably somewhere around four years before the fall of Jerusalem. Then another reason to believe that this is the Apostle. He concludes the Epistle with a, that unique benediction which we're told was the closing, it seems, very much to all of his epistles. Hebrews 13.25 says, Grace be to you all. Amen. And it's the same also in Thessalonians. Second Thess Thessalonians 3.17 he ends there in verse 18 the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's a very common benediction. There are many other things we can say. Also if you notice in the postscript it says written to the Hebrews from Italy by Timothy. Timothy was the courier, if you like, the one who was bringing this. And we know Paul was there in Italy and Rome at that time particularly. Now having established these things, let us just cover briefly the context, then we'll come to these words. The Apostle Paul begins this epistle, doesn't he, by speaking to these Jews and telling them, remember that you have heard the word of God, essentially, verse 1 of chapter 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners or many ways, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us, and that would mean the apostles and the Jews at the time, by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, chapter 1 is a glorious, a tremendous presentation of the very person of Jesus Christ. 
it, it, it is so wonderful because the Apostle Paul, he sets forth the brightness, notice verse 3, of Christ's glory. And John could say, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, James and John, they saw that glory upon that holy mount. And he's setting that all forth here. And uh, Christ, in these last days, has spoken. Remember, it was the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 1.15, who began to renunciate the gospel. He has spoken in these last days by his Son. And what did Jesus Christ begin to do? He began preaching, repent and believe ye the gospel. Now many of them heard, and by the grace of God they were regenerated, quickened, and brought to a living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he's reminding them of the excellency and the wonder of Jesus Christ, who is the very brightness of his glory. That's the glory of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came into the world, and though he made the world, John tells us, the world knew him not. But for a moment, Peter, James, and John, they beheld his glory there upon that holy mount. And furthermore, what else did he do? Having come in the world and lived as the last Adam, what else did he do? Well, he, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Very important doctrine there. When did Christ purge the sins of his people? Was it the day we believed? Never. It was there upon the cross at Calvary, my friend. If I have to look to the day when I first believed, that would be hopeless. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It was there upon the cross that my sins were purged. You see, God knows sins past, present and future. He knew every one of the sins of his people. This is why Paul could say that the handwriting that was against us was nailed to the cross. He brought all the sins of his people. Isaiah 53, 11, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. When did he bear it? When he purged our sins on the cross. It's vital doctrine, my friends. The atonement was a once act. It's not like the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, I know we are made right with God when we repent. That's undeniable. But when was peace made? Peace was made. God makes peace. You know, I often hear people saying, perhaps you've heard people say, well, I'll go and make my peace with God. We can never make peace with God. God made peace on behalf of his people in his Son. When he was made sin, when he bore the sin of many upon the cross. And then in time we are justified by faith. Paul tells us, first of all, in Galatians 3, we are justified by grace. And that grace is when Christ bore the sins of his people. And then we are justified by faith in time. We are justified both by grace and by faith. And we have faith because God regenerates the soul and brings a man to faith to believe all that Christ has done for him. And that's a wonderful thing. We can look back and say, there he was, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. 
What a saviour. We have a wonderful saviour. And who is he? The very brightness of the glory of the Father. And here, when he purged our sins on the cross, and is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of God on high. And you know, the, uh, the most alluded to verse of the Old Testament is what we see quoted here at least twice in this first chapter. When the Father said, quoting there from Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit down at my right hand. When did the Father say that? When Christ, having finished his work upon the cross at Calvary, expired, gave up the ghost and said, Father, into my hands I commend my spirit. And then, while his body died, and the body went to the grave, immediately he went with a malefactor that day into heaven, into glory. And the Father didn't relegate to, to him some place in the corner of the room, but he is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty of the Father. And he has taken a place of honor and glory. And Paul is saying to these Christians that are suffering great persecution, what is he saying? Consider all of these things. Don't let these things slip. This is what he says in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren. You see, they've heard. They've believed. Who is he writing to? He is not writing to unbelievers. Now, I'm emphasizing this because we'll get to the text in a moment. Where some will quote verse 3. And he says there. I quoted there from chapter 3 verse 1. Wherefore holy brethren. See they are believers. He's writing to believers. But here in chapter 2. Therefore verse 1. We ought to give the more earnest heed. To the things which we have heard. So you've already heard them. Yeah this is not the unbeliever. But those who have heard. Lest at any time. We should let them slip. Now the word there slip. Is a nautical term. And if you were to study. The epistle to the Hebrew, it's full of nautical terms. We read of the captain of our salvation. We read of the anchor for the soul, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul. That's Christ. Our hope in him is the anchor for the soul, who is gone within the veil. Think of the Old Testament. Think of the veil, the curtain, and behind that, the holy of holies. But he has passed through the heavens, says the Apostle Paul, and gone within the veil. He says, I'm not speaking of the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly. You see, many of the Jews in this day were saying, you don't have a high priest. You don't have a temple. You don't have the things we have. They were made, as we read later on, a gazing stock. And many of them were becoming very discouraged and downcast. But he says, no, you need to conserve. Chapter 1 is tremendous. And what Paul does in even chapter 1, he says, consider the angels. Who are they? The Jews had a tendency to worship angels. They are glorious beings. But who are the angels? He says, they are ministering spirits to them who are the heirs of salvation. Verse 14. Chapter 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them 
who shall be heirs of salvation. This Lord Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But friends, the angels, God has passed over the lost angels. There's no salvation for them. But for them, as we will see, who are the seed of Abraham, the promised seed, Galatians 3, God promised Father Abraham that out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation, he would have an elect people and that he would save them. Now, I want you to notice, these are verses, and sadly, this is often the case, that are often misconstrued. Verse 1, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So they've heard it. They've received these things. Now again, I say this terminology here is a nautical term. The word is used with having to do with a rope slipping through the hand. So they have it. They have this truth. Now, he says, you need to give them all earnest heed to the things that you've heard about Jesus Christ. You've seen, you've heard glorious things. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received the just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? He's first of all telling us in verse 2 of that time when God gave the law. And where was it? On Mount Sinai. We're told that we're not in Psalm 68 verse 17 then. That there was a myriad of angels when the law came down. But more than that, Christ was there. Because Paul quotes that verse. When he led captivity captive, he gave gifts to men. It's not just found in Ephesians 4, but it's found in that Psalm 68. When Christ was there with the angels, he who was the lawgiver. Now the angels, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast or true, and every transgression of disobedience received a just recompense and reward, how solemn was God's word. God warned if any man touched that mount. He would be slain. He would be struck. And God is saying here, his word is true. Now here's the thing. When he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Many people will say, hold on a minute. So you can lose your salvation. No. Let me put it to you this way. As we will see. God's sheep are always kept by the warnings of scripture. Didn't the Lord Jesus Christ say, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and he that comes to me I will in no wise cast out? But did he not also say to the disciples, If I write, I offend thee, pluck it out, lest thou be cast into hellfire. Or, if I write on, thy right hand offend thee. And you see, the sheep always heed what they've heard. They prize it, they cherish it, they love it. And this is what Paul is saying. He's not saying you can lose your salvation. And let me say, friends, salvation is not a hit and miss thing. The atonement was not a hit and miss thing. Christ died for his sheep. The father didn't lay upon his son any more than his son had to bear. That would be a terrible doctrine, wouldn't it? And Christ, we are told, shall see the travail of his soul. And shall be satisfied. And every one of his sheep, my friends, shall come to him. Did he not say he has a hundred sheep? And if one goes, he'll go and look for it and he'll find it. And there'll be great rejoicing. 
Did he not say there'd be rejoicing with all the angels of heaven? And we read here, it says, as we read, he will sing one day, here am I, and all the children, not some of them, that the Father has given. Not one will be lost. So it's a warning, isn't it? Let me say this. I waver application. The Christian will always take earnest heed to the things that he's heard. Why? Firstly, because we love the things that we hear. We love to hear about Jesus Christ. Do you love to hear about Jesus Christ? But also, do you? We are, we are kept, as I said, by the warnings, aren't we? We see God's wisdom. We see God's word to be wisdom. We cherish it. We love it. Let me take you to another passage just briefly. I said that there are many passages, and there are indeed, that men can talk. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6, and here's another verse. You know about the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had many, many problems. They had a man who had taken his father's wife, and the church didn't deal with it. The church was steeped in pride, were they not? Boasting in men, boasting in gifts, boasting in abilities, boasting in, in many things. Priding themselves. And Paul had to put a lot of things right. Many of them, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, were taking others to court. And he said, dare you take anyone to court? This is, this is not right. This is not a Christian behavior. Why would you drag Christ's name into the law courts and shame that blessed name? Well, you don't do that. God's children, they deal with matters in the church. If my brother sin against thee, take it to him. If he doesn't hear you, you take somebody else. And if he doesn't hear you and them, you take it to the church. And if he doesn't listen to the church, you must consider that man an infidel, an unbeliever. The church at Corinth had many problems. And still even here, many of them were opposing the fact that the Apostle Paul was an apostle. But didn't he say, were not the signs and the wonders of an apostle done amongst you? Are we not manifest that we are the Lord's apostles? And things were not right. Things were not right with the church. It's important I give that context. And he says here in this passage, if you turn to chapter 5 verse 20, now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now I don't know how many preachers I've heard you take that text and apply that to unbelievers, but it's so clear in this passage that this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he calls them brethren, chapter 1 verse 8, my brethren, he says, for we would not, brethren, have you ignorant. He's writing to Christians, he's writing to believers. And here he says, we beseech you now to be reconciled to God. But hold on a minute. Doesn't God reconcile us to himself? He says that in this epistle. God was reconciling us to himself by his son. Where did he do it? On the cross. We don't reconcile ourselves, but there's a sense, you see, 
in which the believer at times of his life is not right with God. He's not reconciled to God. The new birth is regeneration and regeneration is irreversible. Is it not? Yet there is what we call remaining sin. And that's what many of the Corinthians had. Look at what he says. Verse 17 of chapter 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God. Who hath noticed reconciled us to himself? He's already done it. So why is he saying now, you be reconciled? Because you're unreconciled because of your ongoing sin. And they needed to hear the word of God. Do you see that? But my, I am sick to the back teeth of many of these modern theological seminaries absolutely doing great despite to the scriptures. And I want to take you a little bit further. Look at chapter 6. He's writing to them, We then as workers together with him, that is Christ, beseech you that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. Now when the grace of God comes, what does John say? And of his fullness have we received grace for what? For more grace. When grace comes, it's like a river that flows to us. The power of God's word and his spirit. At times, friends, as Christians, we don't apply to the grace of God. We don't live in the light of all of our privileges. Do we? The times we do receive the grace of God in vain. Now I'll take you to the next verse. This again is another verse often taken out of context. For he saith, I've heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I'll just take you very briefly. That is a quotation from Isaiah 49. You just turn there with me. It's that passage, one of the four servant songs of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the occasion is this. He's come into the world. And there's a tremendous passage. Listen, O Isles, verse 1 of Isaiah 49, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. The Lord hath called me from the womb. From the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name, and hath made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand, hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me, and said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Jesus Christ is that polished shaft, and the Father would take him out just at that right moment, and he would procure salvation. He was hidden. Think of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. 33 years of relative obscurity. Who is this? The carpenter's son. The world made the world. He was in the world. Yet the world knew him not. And yet the father brought that polished shaft out in time. And then his ministry of three years. He came to his own, his own received him not. But who is he? Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The true Israel, the true vine, 
Around the temple was a vine. And did he not say, you know, around Herod's temple was a vine. And, and, and Israel were always meant to, to bear fruit. We have it in Isaiah 5. That God's people are a vine. Were meant to be that vineyard. But he is that true vine. That always bears fruit to God. But then look. Then I said I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for naught. And in vain. Yet surely my judgment or deliverance is with the Lord. And my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to his servant. To bring Jacob again to him. And so on. You can see that this is of the Lord. That he is the strength. Though Israel be not gathered yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. And my God shall be my strength. And he said it is a light thing. The father speaking to the son. That thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. Friends that's indisputable that speaking of Christ. That thou mayest be my salvation to the end of the earth. Now notice. We're coming to the verse that Paul quotes. Thus saith the Lord, Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him who man despiseth, and to him the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers and kings, and so on. Now you notice, because of the Lord, end of verse 7, that he is faithful and holy, the Holy One of Israel, he shall choose thee. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee. We see the sun groaning in the earlier part of this chapter. And there he is in the garden of Gethsemane. And we read in Luke 22 verse 43. There appeared an angel unto him, that is to Christ, from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Who strengthened him. We have it there in Isaiah. In a day of salvation. Have I helped thee. Now my friend. Salvation. Salvation is. We're in salvation. Peter says we shall receive the end of our salvation. As you and I struggle against our sin right now. We are being saved. There is a sense in which we are saved. We're justified. We're forgiven. But Peter says. We shall receive the end. Doesn't Paul say we're nearer to the day of our salvation than when we first began? So the lesson coming back there to 2 Corinthians 6. He's saying to the Corinthians, now Corinthians, look. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. You look to this same Lord Jesus who cried in the days of his flesh and was heard. And the Father succored him. I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. And you know what Paul goes on to do? The next of the chapter, he says, and he explains to these Corinthians how he himself and the other apostles have not received the grace of God in vain. And he shows it by the life that he, by the grace of God, lives. By pureness, by knowledge, verse 6, by long-suffering, by kindness. All of these things. And it's by God. Who gives him grace. And what is it? How is it all procured? It's by looking unto him. This is what the apostle says in Hebrews, doesn't he? He says, now consider him. Consider who? Him 
who endured such contradiction from sinners, lest we be weary and faint in your minds. Don't you receive the grace of God in vain? And by the way, verse 1, don't let the things that you have heard slip. The things that you've heard, the things that you hear your pastor preach, that God saves from beginning to end. And what else do you need to know? Don't let the things that you've heard slip. Keep hearing them. Keep coming to church. Keep using the means of grace. We're kept by what? By the power of God through faith. But it's not faith in a vacuum. It's not a nebulous faith. It's faith in Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and yet now is sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And that's where we will be. If he suffered him, Isaiah 49, if he suffered him, will he not succor us? He will. He won't fail you. If God, by his grace, has brought you to Christ, though your faith be as small, my friend, as a mustard seed, thank God. Thank God. It's the gift of God. He'll not fail you. But we've got to feed on the word. You see, we don't give this text, although we, we, we love and I go out every week and preach to the lost. But you see, if you say to somebody, you, you take that text there in 2 Corinthians 6, now is the day of salvation. What you're saying to somebody is, you make a decision. You're pressuring somebody but my friend, where is the work of the Spirit of God in that man? And what are you doing? You're robbing a Christian of vital truth that he needs for life. God has given me grace to overcome my sin in every trial. And of his grace have we received. And for more grace, haven't we? We won't lose our salvation. But here's the thing. Have you heard Paul tells us here, give the more earnest heed. You've heard. And maybe you've heard things over before. And sometimes things can become very mundane to us as Christians, can't they? Well, I've heard it. But have you heard it aright? And maybe you need to hear it again. Maybe you need to hear it with a more freshness. Maybe you just need to go over and pray over the text again. You're giving the more earnest heed to the things that you've heard. Lest at any time you should let them slip. Those who have this salvation will never let it slip. They are cherishing. Paul says, and I must close with this, I know time is really drawn fast. Look what he says if you turn to chapter 6 and verse 9. There are those that fall away. Were they saved? They never were saved. When somebody says to me, well, you, you know, I used to be a Christian, but now I'm not. Well, you know they're a liar, because that can never be true. You can never lose your salvation. There's a difference. Some just receive the truth, and it's just superficial. It's that seed that falls either on the 
stony ground or the wayside has never fallen in the heart. He speaks of those who fall away, but he says this, verse 9, but beloved, see believers there, beloved, you don't call somebody who's not a Christian beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which you've showed toward his name. That's how you know you're a Christian. Do you have a labor of love for him? We love him, friends, because he first loved us. And when we look at ourselves, what are we? We're nothing. We're nobodies. But he loved us. And he continues to love us. And he will bless us. And you know, because he's loved us, we want to go and we want to tell the world. And we want to preach the gospel. I'm all for that and I think we should do it. It's churches, and people, and we just don't know who the Lord is going to say. Do we? We go out with the highways and the byways. You support your minister, your pastor, whether it's in prayer or in a practical way. I'm sure he'll be so thankful for you. May the Lord help us. May the Lord preserve us. We know we will. But you know, we must never forget. We must never let these things slip. Chapter 1 is glorious. You fix your eyes upon Christ. How wonderful he is. He gave himself to such unworthies as we. May God get all the glory. Amen.